Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. The other day, we had an episode that was about Plessy versus Ferguson. So that was the U.S. Supreme Court case that made racial segregation in the United States legal and uh, in some interpretations actually encouraged as long as separate facilities for the different races were equal. So today's episode will definitely be easier to follow if you've already listened to that one first. And what we're going to talk about today is the road to Brown versus Board of Education, which is the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. It would be next to impossible to have ever had a class on American history or the American Civil Rights Movement and have not heard the name Brown versus Board but just like with Plessy versus Ferguson, for a lot of people, like that name and what it did in terms of segregation is sort of the beginning and the end of the knowledge of of what it was all about. And it's a lot more complicated than just one child in one segregated school in a case that uh, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it turns out it's a lot more complicated than I expected when I got into it. So my intent was to have one episode that was about Brown versus Board. But what we're going to do is we're going to have today's episode which goes through sort of the the impact of Plessy versus Ferguson and the the process of getting this finally to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's decision on the matter. We're going to need to have a separate episode to talk about what happened after that, because it was even even just confining it to this part of the story. This episode, I feel like, is a little longer than is typical for us. So we're having a separate episode that's going to be about what happened after the Brown versus Board decision. Uh, was released. So our Plessy versus Ferguson episode started with the context of the American Civil War. This time the context is the aftermath of Plessy versus Ferguson, as Tracy just said. Marshall Harlan, the lone dissenting justice in that decision, argued in his opinion that these laws were inherently discriminatory and unjust. And he wrote that the ruling was going to lead to the proliferation of discriminatory laws and that race relations were only going to get worse. And he was Absolutely correct. Especially in the South, the separation of black citizens from white citizens became increasingly strict and codified. And there were different schools, water fountains and restrooms. Courtrooms had different seats and different Bibles to swear on. Uh, hospitals refused to, to treat black patients. And if there wasn't a hospital that would treat black patients nearby, that was just too bad. Even when separate facilities did exist for people of African descent, they were almost universally poorly funded, badly maintained, and generally inferior to the facilities that were for white people to use. While the basic fact of being funneled to separate inferior facilities was humiliating and degrading, even worse were the social systems that went into enforcing this state of separation. Anyone of African descent was expected to be completely subservient and meek to white people. Black Americans who talked back or stood up for themselves were routinely met with anything from a public humiliation, which is horrible enough, but it went all the way to outright violence. Uh, lynching both of black people and any of their white supporters was a fairly common occurrence, and it was rarely prosecuted. Majority sentiment about race also shifted pretty dramatically in the years following Plessy versus Ferguson. I mean, it it wasn't good before that point, 
But around the turn of the 20th century, white historians like William A. Dunning started to write about Reconstruction as a huge mistake on the part of uh, of the government. And a lot of those opinions actually put it into the classification of being evil. From this point of view, the North had forced unwanted views onto an unwilling South, and it should have just left well enough alone. This situation grew more visibly hostile in the years following World War I. African-Americans who had served their country in the war returned home to find that they were, unlike white veterans, still treated with discrimination and harassment. A series of violent and deadly race riots swept the United States, leading to many deaths and extensive property damage. Yeah, there were also race riots before and after those interwar years, for sure. But that was like the peak With few exceptions during this time, the Supreme Court upheld various states' segregation laws, which had come to be commonly known as Jim Crow laws. And that precedent went on for years after Plessy versus Ferguson. On the rare occasion that the Supreme Court struck down a law, it usually wasn't because the law itself was found to be discriminatory or in violation of the Constitution regarding uh, issues like equal protection under the law. For example, in 1917, the Supreme Court struck down a Kentucky law that outlawed the sale of homes to black people in majority white neighborhoods. But this wasn't because that was a discriminatory thing to do. It was because the law interfered with the right to contract and with the ability of white homeowners to dispose of their property as they saw fit. The court cases brought to try to overturn segregation were largely pursued by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Most people will recognize it as the NAACP, and that was first founded in 1909. This interracial group got its start challenging discriminatory laws. They were advocating for equal access to employment, housing, and voting, and generally campaigning for black Americans to have equal protections, access, and rights under the law. In 1931, Nathan Marigold, who was working with the NAACP, outlined a plan to fight school segregation. And rather than directly going up against the idea that separate schools were discriminatory or that schools for black children were inferior to schools for white children, this legal strategy focused on budgets. So in the South, especially, the budgets for schools for black children were vastly lower than the budgets for schools for white children. And there was extensive documentation of this that was like out there. It was not something you were going to have to investigate. It was obvious. And the hope was that by bringing this point of easy-to-document unequal spending before the court, school systems were going to end up with two choices. They would either have to raise the budget of the black schools to match that of the white schools, or they could save all that money and just operate one school to educate all races. At that point, the widespread majority view was that white children should be educated separately from black children and that there was nothing unfair about doing so. So Marigold thought that their best shot at challenging the system was to hit the school system in their wallets. Yeah, he really, everyone was was pretty hopeful that if if they presented this to the court, people were going to be like, well, we can't possibly afford to raise the budgets that much. And we're definitely not going to lower the budgets of the schools for white children. So they would just have to sort of throw their hands up and go, well, I guess our hands are tied. But money intervened in all of this in a completely different way. Taking a case all the way to the Supreme Court is extremely expensive, and this was the Great Depression. Then in 1933, Marigold was appointed solicitor to the Department of the Interior under Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. So his plan sort of, uh, it didn't really evaporate, but 
he was going to be replaced with someone else who would have a different plan. And that's what we'll talk about uh, after a brief word from a sponsor. So to return to the story of uh, of Nathan Marigold's successor, that was Charles Hamilton Houston. He was valedictorian of his class at Amherst College, and he went on to study law at Harvard and became the first African-American editor of the Harvard Law Review. Houston took another look at Marigold's strategy, and he found that, yeah, it was a pretty good strategy, but it did come with some risks. Black teachers who testified about their budgets and their salaries would probably wind up losing their jobs as a result. And given the economic uh, climate of the Great Depression, those teachers probably were not going to be able to find other work afterward. There was also the possibility that the strategy would not actually end segregation, that uh, the courts would just force the school systems to equalize their budgets between schools for different races, and the schools would either find money somewhere or, you know, make things look as though they were equal on paper. So uh, Houston wanted to take a different approach. Instead of focusing on public schools, the NAACP would focus on colleges and universities. Segregation in these schools was just as prevalent as it was in elementary through high schools, but states had far more primary and secondary schools than they had colleges and universities. The NAACP would be able to make a difference while also fighting on fewer fronts. Focusing on colleges and professional schools also got rid of a lot of the wiggle room for schools to make excuses. So with public schools, uh, school boards might be able to explain disparities in curricula for different schools by saying, well, this school is focused on college prep and that one is focused on vocational work. Or they might say, sure, the school for the white children is new and the black school is older, but the classrooms are the same size and they have otherwise equivalent facilities. It was a lot harder to explain away differences between one law program and another law program. And people thought that focusing on the college level would also be less emotional for parents. College and professional school students were on the cusp of adulthood, so there was less of a perception that white students needed to be protected from some kind of racial threat. Also, the more explicitly racist view of the time was that white children who went to school with black children would get used to them breaking down a barrier that some people felt needed to be there. Yeah, that that idea was less tied to the college idea where people, you know, people a lot of people think of kids of that age as being a little bit more set in their ideas, which is not necessarily true, at least in like my college experience. I changed my views on a lot of things in college, but people were less threatened by that idea. So the NAACP started its search for plaintiffs in a case to take to the Supreme Court at the University of Maryland Law School. The University of Maryland only admitted white students, and there was no law school for black students in Maryland at all. So when the NAACP started its search, at that point, there had been nine African-Americans who had applied for admission to the University of Maryland Law School, and they had been rejected because of their race. One of them, Donald Murray, was an exceptional student. Had he been white, he definitely would have gotten into the program. And when he was turned down because he was black... School officials recommended that he go to Howard, which is a traditionally black university in Washington, D.C. And it wasn't just a recommendation. The state of Maryland would give him a scholarship from a fund that was set up for black students who could not attend school in Maryland because of their race. The NAACP took up Murray's case. And in 1935, a court found that the scholarship was not equal to admission at a state supported school. 
as we've said before, the segregation had to be separate but equal. For one thing, this scholarship was only a small amount that could defray tuition costs and would not remotely have covered tuition at Howard or even reduced its cost to being the same as that of a state-supported school in his state where he lived. For another thing, attending Howard rather than a school in Maryland would have put Murray at a disadvantage when it came to practicing law. Since Howard isn't located in Maryland, Murray wouldn't be studying with Maryland lawyers, and he wouldn't be building a network in the state where he plans to practice law. So the court ordered that Murray be admitted to the University of Maryland Law School, and in 1938, he became the first black person to graduate from there. This case did not overturn segregation anywhere else, but it was the NAACP's first major school segregation victory. It was also the first case that Thurgood Marshall worked on for the NAACP. As a side note, Thurgood Marshall also went to Howard University under exactly the kind of scholarship that was at issue, and he graduated first in his class at the law school. The NAACP continued to pursue more college and professional school segregation cases throughout the courts. Gaines versus Canada made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and this one was pretty similar to Murray's case. Lloyd Gaines had not been admitted to a state-supported school in Missouri because of his color, and the state had offered him a scholarship to a different school in another state. A lower court found that this scholarship was essentially equal to being allowed to attend the school. But the U.S. Supreme Court reversed that ruling, noting that offering a student a scholarship to a school in another state was not the same as offering an actual equal education within the state. Missouri would have to either admit gains to the law program at the school that admitted only white students, or it would have to start a law program at its college for black students. This still didn't overturn any segregation laws, though, since the ruling just meant that states had to offer their own equal but separate education within their state, rather than basically farming it out to other states. It didn't order Missouri to take any specific action either, just to, in some way, fix its situation. So it really was offering equal programs for black and white students. So, unfortunately, after this kind of partial victory, Gaines' case got stalled in the courts for years. There was this whole series of, like, reversals and appeals and and sending it back and bringing it back up and... Eventually, Gaines himself disappeared, meaning that the NAACP just couldn't pursue it anymore. I did not find out what happened to him. I don't know if we know what happened to him. The NAACP continued on with a long and frustrating series of other cases in other states, including Missouri, Tennessee, South Carolina, and Oklahoma. And while states often responded with delaying tactics and evasions of court orders, there was some progress made. More states started offering scholarships to private schools in the state if the state-supported schools did not admit black students, or they started offering programs for black students to attend all-white programs in some capacity. The number of African Americans who had access to higher education started to increase in southern and border states. As kind of a quick aside, it should go without saying, and there's not really a great place in this outline to say it, so we're just going to say it here before we take another brief break. Everyone involved in bringing these cases uh, to any court throughout this episode did so at great personal risk. So people were harassed and threatened. They lost their jobs on and on. So as all of this was happening, the struggle to try to integrate schools was being done, you know, by people who were doing so knowing that they could have really poor ramifications on their own personal situation. Uh, and at this point in the story, classrooms are still segregated. So 
We're going to take another brief word from a sponsor and then come back to talking about when we finally got to the point of, of the Supreme Court desegregating schools. To return to our story, the NAACP slowly chipped away at different aspects of college and professional school segregation by bringing these cases into the courts. And it also started to broaden its focus. So while many of the cases from the late 30s and early 40s had focused on whether states were providing equal access to education for both races, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, the, they started focusing on the inherent discrimination that was part of having segregated facilities at all. The U.S. Supreme Court heard the case of McLaurin versus Oklahoma in 1948. And in this case, George McLaurin had been allowed to attend the University of Oklahoma because there was no graduate level program at Langston University, which was the college for black students. While McLaurin was allowed to attend the otherwise white school, he was separated from the white students in pretty much every context. He sat in a row by himself in class. He ate by himself. Since he was the only black graduate student, this completely isolated him from all of his peers. The Supreme Court also heard the case Sweat versus Painter in 1950, which focused on the right of a black student named Heman Sweat to attend law school at the University of Texas rather than the Texas State University for Negroes. In both of these cases, the arguments from the NAACP lawyers focused on the indignity, unfairness and discrimination that were inherent in segregation as well as violations of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which we've discussed in detail in the Plessy versus Ferguson episode. In both cases, the Supreme Court found in favor of the students, not the states. But neither of these rulings was broad enough to overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. It only applied to these specific students and the colleges that they were trying to attend. Some colleges and professional schools did start to voluntarily desegregate at this point because they were anticipating that other rulings were going to come that would force them to do it. And so with these precedent cases finally out there, the NAACP turned its focus back to elementary and secondary school segregation, which is where we finally come to Brown versus Board of Education. Although Brown v. Board sounds like one case with one plaintiff, it was actually a collection of five cases argued before the Supreme Court at the same time. Although these cases were argued by different NAACP lawyers, Thurgood Marshall was a prominent figure among them, and he took the lead once the cases came before the Supreme Court. In Briggs v. Elliott, which is a South Carolina case, Marshall developed a strategy meant to challenge the innate unfairness of segregation. He brought in psychologists, sociologists, and other experts to testify to the fact that segregation was inherently damaging to children, especially to black children. He also recommended that rather than allowing black children to attend the white schools, that white children should be sent to the black schools as a way to call out these supposedly equal schools were not equal at all. Uh, this testimony is where, what, like, one of the most cited experiments about the damaging parts of segregation came up frequently, and that's the test where they would offer children different dolls and, and ask them to pick the good doll and the and the bad doll. And really, regardless of their race, children picked the white doll to be the good doll and the black doll to be the bad doll. And uh, like just a lot of other uh, indicators that, that, that children were, were picking up the idea that black was bad um, by being segregated. 
So the famous Brown versus Board of Education uh, gets its name from one of the other cases in that set of five. And that was Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Although there were many plaintiffs involved in this case, the lead plaintiff was Oliver Brown. His name came first alphabetically on the plaintiff list, so that's why he's listed. Brown was the father of a little girl who had to attend the black school, even though she had to walk directly past a much nicer, better appointed, better funded white school on the way there every single day. The other three cases that fell under the Brown versus Board umbrella were two cases uh, from Delaware. Those were called Gebhardt et al. versus Belton et al. and Gebhardt versus Beulah. And the other was Davis versus County School Board of Prince Edward County, which was a Virginia case. These cases all work their way through the lower courts, much the same as the cases we've talked about earlier in this episode. And originally, the Supreme Court was set to hear Brown versus Board and Briggs versus Elliott on the same day. But soon, the other three cases were ready for the Supreme Court as well. And in the end, arguments for all five were set to start on December 9th of 1952. Thurgood Marshall would lead the NAACP's legal team. Because they essentially had five cases to argue, the arguments went on until the afternoon of December 11th. NAACP lawyers made many of the same arguments that they'd brought up in lower, lower courts, that segregation was psychologically damaging to black children, that it was inherently discriminatory, and that it was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. The states all separately defended their practices of segregation, primarily arguing that the 14th Amendment allowed them to maintain separate facilities. A few months later, the court issued an order, but it was not a decision. It was in order that all five cases would be held over to the next term and re-argued, which is something that really does not happen very often. Uh, some other notable examples where this has taken place, and these names will kind of give you a hint as to how momentous it was, uh, were Roe versus Wade on the issue of abortion, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission on the issue of whether corporations have First Amendment protections to free speech. Yeah, it's it's the really... <laughs> it's the most controversial cases that seem to be re-argued most often. The court also asked for new briefs, and this time they wanted them to answer specific questions related to the 14th Amendment. And there were they were extensive. So very briefly, how did or didn't the states that ratified the 14th Amendment understand that it would abolish segregation? And if the states had not understood that, did the framers of the amendment understand how it might be used? Was it within the power of the court to use the 14th Amendment to abolish segregation at all? And if it was, what would it take to do this? How would desegregation actually be done? Opinions among the NAACP lawyers were actually divided about whether this request to re-argue the case was a positive or negative sign. But among the state's lawyers, everyone generally felt pretty confident that it was going their way and that segregation would be upheld. Re-arguments started on December 7th, 1953, so almost a year after the first arguments had started, and they went on for another three days. In the re-argument, Thurgood Marshall strenuously argued that it was within the power of the Supreme Court to end segregation, that it did not need to fall to Congress to pass a new law or to amend the Constitution. But the states argued that the NAACP's interpretation of the 14th Amendment was fundamentally flawed and that it, as we've said so many times, allowed for different facilities that were still equal. 
On May 17th of 1954, so at this point this has gone on for a year and a half, uh, the Supreme Court announced its decision. The court, led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, whose name you may remember from our episodes on Mendez versus Westminster and Loving versus Virginia, was unanimous. The decision began, segregation of white and Negro children in the public schools of a state solely on the basis of race, pursuant to state laws permitting or requiring such segregation, denies to Negro children the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Even though the physical facilities and other tangible factors of white and Negro schools may be equal. It also directly addressed Plessy versus Ferguson by saying the separate but equal doctrine adopted in Plessy versus Ferguson, 163 U.S. 357, has no place in the field of public education. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, this decision didn't give much guidance on how schools were supposed to integrate. So in 1955, the case was re-argued yet again from April 11th to April 14th. And this time, the additional arguments were related to how to implement the previous decision. Uh, This new decision was given on May 31st of that year, and it ordered that the plaintiffs in the previous cases be admitted to the schools in question, quote, on a racially non-discriminatory basis with all deliberate speed. School authorities were given the responsibility for figuring out how to solve problems related to integration at the local level with input from the courts when it was necessary. The original five cases were remanded back to district courts to figure out how to implement those uh, specific rulings or to uphold the uh, earlier rulings, whichever was more applicable. So in a lot of ways, this was disastrous, which is why we need to have a whole other episode to talk about it. School systems and states, especially but not exclusively in the South, strenuously resisted integration. It was huge. And that's why, as I just said, a subject of a whole separate episode. Uh, we cannot basically leave it here by saying, and then segregation was overturned. <laughs> Yay. Because a lot of what happened afterwards was, was monumental and horrifying and uh, in some ways still echoing <laughs> through school systems in the United States today. Uh, So that is where we're going to pause for a brief moment. Do you have a spot of listener mail for us? I do. It is a brief listener mail uh, because this episode, as I said at the beginning, is a little longer than we typically do. Um, And it is from Amanda. And Amanda says, hello, ladies. I'm surprised that I'm actually able to write this email because I am so excited that it is hard to sit still. What she's excited about, which you can glean from the subject of the, uh, the email, but not as much in the text, uh, is that we talked about a site that she works on in our Unearthed in 2014 episode. I don't recall if it was part one or part two. And she says, you mentioned at 13 minutes, two seconds, a well in Tuscany. I've been excavating at that well for the past two years and will be going back this year. I worked at the find tent up by the well and cleaned everything that came in during those two seasons. And that was a lot. In one strata, we had over 20 kilos of broken bits of pottery. We were all very sad when the well closed as it signaled the end of almost 50 years of on and off excavation. But the director was incredibly happy to have finally reached the bottom and to know all that the well contained. Thank you so much for mentioning my site and your show. It was one of the coolest things ever. Thank you, Amanda. I always love hearing from people who are directly working with things that we've talked about in the episodes. Uh, So... 
we are going to stop this episode here for today and we are going to pick the story back up in, uh, I think our next episode is how that's working out on the calendar. If you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, you can. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Our Facebook is Facebook.com slash History, and our Twitter is History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we are also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store at MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com, where you can buy T-shirts and phone cases and whatnot. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our website and put the word Brown v. Board into our search bar. You will find the article about how the civil rights movement worked, which talks about Brown versus Board of of Education, because it was a huge, huge part of the civil rights movement. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you can find an archive of every single episode we have ever done, as well as show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.